Hi everybody and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknesum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm okay, David. I'm okay. I'm, I'm excited about this episode, so that's good. Yeah, I am too. I am too. The uh, weather here is getting pretty warm. It's actually pretty nice. I uh, went to an ultrasound place, got a nice picture of my I love that picture. Oh, you like? Thank you. Yeah, I got I got some pics of my very feisty and very stubborn 34-week-old son. He has, um, every visit that we've taken to the doctor, he has kicked the heart monitor when it's been pressed against, <laughs> which is uh, quite a startling thing to hear his heart and then a big thump as he kicks it. And uh, when we were trying to get a picture of him, I saw my future uh, trying to get him to sit for a portrait um, because he was just not having it. He was kind of making out with the placenta and sort of <laughs> sort of refusing to to look at the at the camera. But there were a few really great shots in there. Towards the end of it, he got so frustrated that you just see him holding his fists up. So there's a great shot of just you know his little tiny fist saying, "If you don't get that thing out of my face." I swear, you know. But uh, no, it was lovely. Yeah, life is good here. How about in, how about in Vegas? Uh, the wind is up here, and uh, it's, it's very erratic. Uh, the local indigenous people, traditional landowners, the, the Moapas, uh, call it the mad child, which uh, kind of ties in with your son, perhaps. It does, it, um, doesn't it? it? It does feel like a temperamental... Uh, infant with supernatural powers stirring up all sorts of psychological complexity and you know when when you see people walking around without their masks on uh everybody's got a natural sort of scowl on their face because of 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 the wind uh not really that cold but 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 destabilizing you know oklahoma is famous for its wind in fact there's a song that's all about that <laughs> and plant that earworm day <laughs> oh yeah uh, i won't i won't grace the audience with my beautiful singing voice but um but no i 100 percent understand what you're talking about with the wind because it just infuriates me sometimes to walk out it's just it's by far the most well aggressive weather that you could think of and it just doesn't let up and you think to yourself you know it's It'll rock my car back and forth when I'm on the highway, and I'll think, geez. Yeah. Tell me how you really feel. Goodness gracious. <laughs> um, well, Chris, I would like to, at the top of the show, do a quick call to action. I would also like to give a shout-out to uh, listener Harvey, who left us a review on iTunes. Five stars. Thank you, sir. It reads, a devoted listener. It's the header. Uh, he says, what strikes me about hosts David and Chris is the breadth of knowledge and the ease with which they move through worlds and make their experiences and ideas accessible to listeners. Very kind. Thank you, Harvey. We appreciate that. That's great. Yeah. Um, if you wouldn't mind, uh, dear listener, uh, following in Harvey's footsteps a little bit, it doesn't have to be as nice as that if you're not feeling that. That's totally fine as well. But reviews do help us move up with the Apple algorithm. So I will place a link in the show notes. And yeah, that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Chris and I would also really love some emails uh, sent to the butterfly in your mouth at gmail.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. So this is a lot to remember if you're driving or doing the dishes. But uh, Chris and I are very interested in developing a bit more community. So we are excited to hear what you think about some of the ideas we discuss on the show and devoting a bit of time at the top of the show, like I'm doing now, towards uh, going through maybe one or two of the ones that really catch our attention and sort of doing a, a deep dive into it before we get into the show proper. So please do that. Uh, and also tell your friends. Uh, this show has been growing every week. So thank you very much for um, for honoring my request in that regard. I'm just eternally grateful that I get to hang out with this really cool guy and uh, shoot some ideas back and forth. So Chris, did you have anything you wanted to add in there before we get into the show? No, just to support everything you said and, and uh, 
to express gratitude to uh, our listeners, people who are responding, giving feedback, suggestions, uh, putting forward you know, possible topics for future episodes and, and series arcs. Uh, I have heard from people that the series idea, uh, whether it be you know, two consecutive or three, um, is a good framework uh, for the show, and it allows us to do some more deep diving. Uh, or thought diving, as uh, Melville would say. Uh, so I think that's great feedback, and uh, I'm I'm keeping a, a list, and uh, we've been talking backwards and forwards about some of these suggestions, and uh, they really inform our thinking, you know. And I think that's the key thing about community is it isn't just a group, you know. There's there's a dynamic that's working. Remember, we talk we're talking about cargo as a verb. And that idea of interrelationships always needing to be nurtured and stimulated uh, regularly. You know, that's what community really means. And it's uh, a constant sharing of ideas. So this is very exciting. Um, And I think as we go forward, we've now got a pretty uh, interesting track record of episodes. And we're starting to get a good feel for uh, some of the, the, the general big topic arcs that seem to be connecting with people. So the more feedback we get, uh, the better it will be. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, Chris and I could just talk about the weather for an hour or two, if that's what you'll like. No, I'm just kidding, of course. But um, Chris, on that note, what would you like to talk about today? Okay, Uh, one of the big themes that has emerged, which seems to uh, resonate with people, just on its own, but I think it, it, it constantly will need further development, refinement, uh, expansion, uh, amplification, is our, our call for a renewed interest in anthropology and perhaps even a new kind of anthropology. Um, we've looked at the risks, the rewards, and the responsibilities of investigating other cultures, sometimes very different to say American society as a means of gaining some perspective and perspective is a key word we talked about perspectivism last time I think we'll uh, be discussing that further at many points but there really is a a problem of getting an aerial view of one's own culture Mm -hmm. Uh, and where you can I think it's a very, very powerful and satisfying experience. It, it does, as we acknowledge, have risks, rewards, and responsibilities to it. Uh, not all anthropology is good anthropology mm-hmm. and it may not stand up over time. But I think if our watchwords uh, for examining other cultures are curiosity and respect, uh, we, we have a good starting point. So mm-hmm. on that, I mean, anthropology is the study of, of culture, human culture generally. And one of our listeners, who's a longtime friend of mine, one of uh, the world's leading scientists in his field, challenged and encouraged me to attempt to put forward uh, an accessible but embracing working definition of culture with a capital C. So I'd like to kick off with my uh, trial run at that, if you will, um, which will need further work, teasing out, uh, exploration. Um, I'm not trying to get it all done in in one go. But here's what I came up in response to that friend's uh, challenge and encouragement. Are we ready? Yes, sir. Okay. Culture with a capital C equals the means and mechanism that cultures, lowercase plural, employ to adapt to, regulate, and in some cases resist change. Change being social, technological, environmental, all levels, okay? So that, I I threw that out and I started to think about how to maybe put that tool to use, because that's the measure of any tool, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it needs to, to be a, a good tool, you know, should be simple to use, but can be used on, you know, complex, interesting tasks. 
And I did think that one of the ways to think about American society, American culture with a capital C, if that exists, and I think that's a debatable point, uh, is, is defined and marked by what I view as a, a really drastically split mind conflict between approaches to change. Um, on the one hand, nostalgia, tradition, conservativeness in the sense of conservation, and on the other extreme, uh, a radical and sometimes uh, off-the-rails uh, worship of innovation for its own sake, which can pretty uh, immediately lead to uh, obsolescence in terms of products. Got to get that update. Mm -hmm. Or amnesia. What was that headline yesterday? You know, mm -hmm. And I think a, a kind of confusion and a sense of of personal paralysis that I am hearing from my, my I know a, a couple of really good psychologists who are friends, um, they're seeing a great deal of this. And I think we're feeling a great deal of this in media and social media, that this big idea of cultural confusion, we can never forget that that translates very directly right down to the personal roof lines and, and minds of, of people today. I mean, I feel it. I think you'd agree. I mean, everyone feels, I think, a sense of, of tension and kind of almost a, an atmospheric sense of conflict. So I think with that idea of, of, of the American mindset being almost schizophrenic um, in its approach to change is one way of seeing our culture versus some other cultures, particularly indigenous and tribal cultures around the world. Because um, one thing that I, I have noticed in the cultures that I've either lived amongst or studied or have researched in any way, nostalgia does not seem to be a word that, that comes up. And I think that's, mm. that's kind of interesting. Um, but we also uh, would like to keep, you know, keep the thread going with our last episode. And you introduced a very interesting book um, that I think that, that uh, you know, allows for further exploration and that will maybe tie back into this theme of the management of change, uh, which is to say the management of time and language, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can you remind our listeners of what, what you uh, left us with last time? Because I think it's a, a book and a set of ideas that are, are, are worth more time and inquiry. Sure. So last episode... I talked about How Forests Think by Eduardo Cohn, and the major takeaway idea from that was the concept of perspectivism, which we made the key distinction between perspectivism and relativism. And to perhaps overly simplify it, uh, perspectivism is the idea of how different beings, different things that are other than human, uh, perceive the world, but also how different humans within different cultures perceive the world. So this time I read a book called Earth Beings by Marisol de la Cadena, and it details her time in the mountains of Peru with a shaman, a particular shaman who she follows through most of the book. Now, what I'm about to do is I'm going to put down a little trail post here because I'm going to put forth three ideas that struck me personally. Um, this is not going to be a, a book report or a summation of the book or, or anything like that um, because it's a, it's a work of anthropology and I think that it's the ideas that you take away from it that are, that are the most important. But that being said, I am going to talk about three very complex ideas that we can chew over now or we can let sit and we can sit with for a while and perhaps come back to them. And uh, the last one in particular, I think, will connect back to what Chris is talking about. Okay, so at first, this isn't going to seem like a direct connection, but stay with me here. So the first idea... Uh, that I wanted to talk about 
was this idea that epistemology, this is the way that um, Cadena puts it, she says that through practice she learned a lesson in political ontology that not everything is through modern epistemology. All right, so what does that mean? Well, what she's really doing with that is challenging the Cartesian mind-body split that we in the West have, this separation between mind and body. And what she's really saying is that there are things that exist outside of what we can know through our different ways of thought. And this is a concept that I think you find in many indigenous cultures throughout the world, and also Western cultures, particularly those segments of Western cultures that tend towards the hermetic or the occult. Would you agree with that? I would. I would. Yeah. I, think that's, uh, I think that is fair. So basically, uh, uh, you know, the idea of, of cogito ergo sum um, extends into this idea of, of, this is how she puts it, things or events are because we, we know them. And this is an idea of getting above this ability to know. The second idea are words as practice. So a lot of this book details this concept of earth beings. And so in the book in particular, they talk a lot about uh, a spirit of a mountain called Asangate, right? And there is a lot of talk in the book about how things in particular are named. And she goes into a lot of sort of painstaking detail to get into the issue of translation. And the reason for that is that in a lot of cases, the words that are spoken and the practices that those words represent are one and the same thing. So the word as practice means that words themselves cannot be separated from the thing that they are enacting. So what does that mean? That means that you have to be very careful about how you do things like pronounce the names of mountain gods. It spooks me out a little bit. I'm a, yeah. I'm a magic believer, and I, I definitely am cautious around uttering barbarous names, as Crowley would put it. Um, so that really, that idea resonated with me, particularly with the importance of language as <clears throat> something that is not strictly uh, relational, something that is actually a, a practice in and of itself, which uh, leads to this thought that I think might lead it more into our culture discussion. So when... When she's thinking about this concept of mountain spirits and earth beings, she asks the shaman who she's with whether the earth spirit of the mountain that they are close to, whose name I can't pronounce, so therefore, you know, that, <laughs> that superstition comes back in. Maybe I just won't pronounce it, right? Um, is the same spirit as Machu Picchu. And his response to that is, not only. What she mm. takes from this concept is something that, the way that she puts it is more than one, but less than two. And this is a bit of academic speak. This is pulled from, from her words. Um, she's talking about uh, how two things can exist at the same time, but also not be a kind of hybrid that changes back and forth, right? Instead, um, indigenous mestizos, for example, as a concept, not an identity, but as a concept, is a permanent hybrid, then stick with me here, a complex intra-relational possibility occupying time-space simultaneously rather than resolving temporally as historical mixture. And what I would connect this to, you know, you mentioned the schizophrenia of current uh, Western culture, something that we talked about in the uh, doppelganger episodes. And I think that 
A schizophrenia entails a rapid shifting back and forth between two extremities, two poles. And what she's suggesting about this particular way of indigenous thought is that it is almost... um, Ways of being are more uh, occupying an almost quantum space. Yeah, quantum simultaneity and non-locality, absolutely. Correct, correct. As a fundamental cultural uh, pattern, absolutely. Right, right. So so we can table any of those that don't work, but I thought those three ideas were just so cool, and I thought you'd get a kick out of them. And I think that last one hooks into what you're talking about. It does, absolutely. And I think that we, um, I mean, it's interesting that uh, Western, particularly rationalist science, has found its way into some very strange uh, quantum mazes that, for many cultures, were their starting point. And I think that that's always uh, something to be uh, to think about. And it maybe if we we tied back into our, our values of curiosity and respect for other cultures, we could add um, a word that I think you've used in another earlier episode of actual humility, you know, of realizing that there there are some deep uh, things to learn, that wisdom is real. Um, but a couple of things just, to, I think, to help listeners with some very, very dense and interesting ideas there, that in and around the, the, the idea of, of perspectivism, which takes many different forms. It's, it's the observer effect issue. It's a philosophical uh, program of thought that we associate with Leibniz and most particularly with Nietzsche. But what we get down to is the great schism of objective reality versus subjective reality. And that is a very, very all-embracing problem. But to think about the American conflicted, paradoxical, split mind, we assume that the distinction between objective and subjective exists, which is an objective statement. That's an objective rhetorical assertion. And it's really quite strange. It's self-contradictory. And... um, it makes me just, this is a little bit of a digression, but I just love this story. I keep finding it as a, to me, it's like it's on a par with Plato's allegory of the cave. And it's the Winnie the Pooh story, Where the Woozle Wasn't, um, where Winnie the Pooh and Piglet circle around this thicket in the snow. And they see their footprints and they multiply. And of course, they begin to fantasize in, about this mythical creature the woozle that they're cha- you know they're chasing. Um, now if I've mentioned that before, I just it just seems to be such a good example of effectively chasing your own tail and forgetting it's your own tail. Um, imagining some sort of specter, you know, a specter is haunting Europe. What a great line. Uh, a specter is haunting American culture that we forget we created. Um, but to get lost in the objective versus subjective split really makes some assumptions about cultural points of view that are just simply not not true, <laughs> you know. And there are many cultures around the world where, where we can look at this. Um, I've got two beautiful uh, books. One is uh, it's like the Velveteen Rabbit. It's falling apart. It's been so well thumbed. It's just. There's not enough tape to hold it together, but um, it's by an anthropologist named Kilton Stewart called Pygmies and Dream Giants, which uh, deals with time um, with Philippine uh, indigenous people. Um, And I'll just, this is an interesting uh, blurb from Kirkus Reviews, no less, who are not famous for their insight or their... uh, (laughs) their charity, but it's described as a fascinating study of psychotherapy and religion in simple societies with applications for Western people, which will have a very special market. Um, That's as good as Kirkus gets, I think, in terms of 
sophistication of thought uh, with respect to Kirkus. Uh, but the other book is uh, by Colin Turnbull called The Forest People, which is a simply marvelous piece of practical but accessible anthropology regarding the pygmy peoples of the Congo River area of Central Africa. Uh, if anyone is in doubt about the term pygmy being some sort of derogative term, I want to correct that. That's not true. Uh, that's some sort of weird uh, program of uh, illiberal thought that's been imposed on, on the field. It's a perfectly valid uh, assessment of, of body type. Uh, and it, it also does relate to certain structural natures of societies. There tend to be very small groups of people uh, with a rich tradition of hunting and gathering and communal storytelling and music. Um, I've met pygmy people in three different parts of the world and they're all very different in my experience but fascinating so there's something going on there. Um, but I wonder if we could return to this idea of if we're saying that the American mindset, and I think we could blow that out to the, the, the Western mindset at least. Perhaps it's the developed nation mindset worldwide now, because there's kind of a global monoculture of, of challenged culture across the developed nations. What is the fundamental misunderstanding of the indigenous cultural mindset? And I wonder if that doesn't tie back into some of what we've talked about of the obsession, often from a marketing point of view, on the individual versus the societal and the communal. I wonder if, if that isn't sort of the key point of difference. And um, I just wanted to get your, your feedback on that. Um, and then to relate a, a, an anecdote from, from my own personal experience about that. What do you think about that as, as a handle on this? That, that somehow we're fundamentally uh, not doing good anthropology as in imposing a grid of mindset and values on other cultures and just not taking their own quantum, uh, non-local, parallel, simultaneous capabilities to mind. What do you think of that? I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think it directly ties into the schizophrenia of the modern American consumer. The way that I would see it is that when you take a person and you atomize them, you separate them from family in a small sense and community in a large sense, and you replace those things with ready-made, ready-to-update ideology and ritual and trinkets and things of that nature, people begin to perceive culture and ways of thinking as things that you kind of try on and discard when they become fashionable and then, you know, inevitably out of fashion. And so when you have that mindset and you take that to something that is uh, complex, quantum entangled, as we said before, but also, but also very firmly placed within a lineage in a way that American culture might not exactly be, I think that we as Westerners then wish to impose the same kind of Rolodex of thought forms that we're for that have been forced upon us onto these people. So I think those two are intimately connected. Okay. Well, look, there are a couple of things there that you said that I think are really interesting that did that tie back into some things we've talked about. I love the idea which you allude to of, you know, religion and spiritual practices are fine when they're seen as customs or cuisine, maybe, cuisine limitations. But if people take them really seriously to heart, then we have a problem, you know, because American society is, is really effectively secular and uh, self-canceling in terms of our engagement with 
the invisible world, the spirits, you know, it, it, that gets people a little bit sort of concerned. But I think an interesting link is a word that it's, I love the verb, uh, and you've used it a couple of times in different episodes, atomized. Uh, you know, I, I, when I was growing up, I was a child of the atomic age, and, and there were a lot of cool, the atom was a cool icon and magical sigil, although it was terrifying in what its capabilities are. But, I mean, it goes back to the ancient Greeks, you know, Democritus, it, it extends through Neoplatonism and the Renaissance magic, and it's a, a very, you know, rich, strange, magical idea. I mean, who hasn't really thought for a moment about, you know, you, you, you pick up a chair and you're told intellectually via the education system that the chair isn't really solid. It's this dynamic, complex universe of, you know, cascading, colliding energy. And, well, that's kind of a magical, weird idea. It is. Um, it is. I, I'm reminded of a film called I Heart Huckabees. You've seen that oh, film yes. with, with Dustin Hoffman where he's, he's talking to Mark, Mark Wahlberg, or maybe it's Jason Schwartzman, and he says, you know, uh, the atoms on your nose meet the air right here. And then he's like, well, what about the atoms that are smaller than those atoms? And he says, well, there's even smaller atoms inside of those atoms. My question about this, not to digress too much, but my question about this has always been, and I don't think it's quite been answered, how the unit of the atom, which is largely indistinct from any other atom, as far as I know, how they know to become a chair or a person or a bottle or the internet or whatever. That's always, there's a kind of telos that's missing from an atomistic understanding of how things work. It's magical, basically. Well, there are, there are two responses to that. I mean, one is that we've got a, a, a category uh, problem, as in Gilbert Ryle's uh, thinking that we're using the word atom and the verb atomize uh, in different ways. I mean, in fact, atoms are different. Um, that's why we have the, you know, the periodic table. So there are rules that, that govern it. And to, to ex one extent, I mean, physics is about defining the rules of those relationships and interactions, how those work. Uh, so is chemistry. That, that's really what's going on there. But I think that when you, when you uh, use the, the, the word atomize as a verb, and we, we think of that in a, in a popular, more colloquial, connotative sense, uh, then, then it is genuinely confusing because it doesn't, it doesn't show us how the whole, any whole, becomes greater than the sum of its parts. And it suggests that, that the, the magic of uh, physical, the physical sciences has come at a cost because it, it does work in a periodic table sort of element. There's a lot of cool things you can do when you start to manipulate atoms Although you can, you know, destroy whole populations and create fear for, you know, generations, um, but just used as a verb in in just popular conversation, atomized really is is the is synonymous with with fragmenting, with breaking up, you know. And I I think that we we have paid a great price uh, in American and Western society for the ability to break things down into component parts, the mechanistic uh, philosophy of life that really took over all of 19th century science. You know, we, we have to uh, kill animals to dissect them, to know what's going on. We lose the organic wholeness. And part of the... Our magic is great in one sense, but we haven't really found a way to reinstate the holism and the organic understanding that traditional tribal cultures often just began with uh, and are trying to maintain against enormous environmental and economic um, and industrialized pressures. So th th there's a real uh, upside and a downside to that. Um, but So there are two points I make. One is that there, if we keep to... Um, uh, rigid scientific definitions of atoms and atomizing, um, that's a whole different game than the popular understanding of that word. And we do that with a lot of words. That's a big problem with our confusion with language. Language, you know, words in practice and words as practice. 
a lot of confusion. And isn't that an interesting word? Fusion sounds like a good thing. Confusion, yeah, not so much. Um, so there, there is a problem about blurring those categories of, of just habitually using the same word in extremely different contexts. And then, like the woozle that Winnie the Pooh and Piglet were thinking they were following, uh, we forget we've done that, you know? We forget we've circled the thicket, you know, X number of times. Uh, and the woozle gets more elusive, you know? Well, okay, <laughs> you know, woozles will do that. Yeah, that's what they tend to do. You know, when you were mentioning the woozle in the first, uh, the first time you mentioned it here on this episode, you brought up the idea of the specter, right? A specter looming. And that reminds me of, um, of earth beings in particular because they think of, you know, the spirit of a mountain as a kind of specter. Remember that idea of it being uh, not, only the same, <clears throat> not only the same as other mountains, but also the same, right? That kind of quantum thing. Mm -hmm. But they use that for other concepts as well. So uh, a corporation might have a specter, um, a particularly popular idea, like a meme, might also be a specter. Uh, and I wonder if maybe our specter is that we're under right now is, is capitalism, perhaps? I'm not sure if it's quite as easy as that. I don't like using that particular C word because it's so overused and misunderstood. I'm not entirely sure that even I under I understand it uh, when I use it, <laughs> but it it feels as though there are these kind of almost godlike or spiritlike forces or specters of of these ideas that are causing some of this uh, schizophrenia, perhaps. Well, my response to that ties back to our atoms and chair uh, analogy. Uh, to me, capitalism, as important as it is to talk about, and there are many other uh, elements that we could talk about in that Gilbert Ryle category sense, you know, big social organizing, systemic institutional uh, concepts. But I, I think that's a level up. That That's like mm -hmm. on the chair level for me, where if we get back down to the atoms and subatomic and even quantum level, I think where the problem starts is 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 the is language, mm -hmm. words in practice and words as practice. I mean, let's just take the idea of spirits, which people often have a lot of difficulty with. If you are following a conventional religious path, uh, in most of the developed nations, spirit seems magical and occult, and something you you might want to avoid, or it's purely. Um, a figurative way of talking, you know, the spirits are against you, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, think about it. Inspire, respire, conspire, spirits in the sense of alcohol and an intoxicating substance. I mean, it, it, it's not just one, it's a field of thinking. It's a constellation of associations. And my sense of, of the indigenous uh, tribal people that I've known is that they're able to embrace constellations of meaning and association in a very dynamic living sense, whereas we atomize them in the sense of fixating them as objects. It's, it's our obsession with nouns and our inability to deal with verbs, you know? Right, right. And it might be valuable to attempt to understand or even in some cases adopt some of these indigenous ways of thought, especially if you, like I do, tend to think uh, that the universe and what we live in is kind of built off of things like metaphor and story, these constellations of meanings that relate to things. It feels to be a much more in-tune way of of thinking with life and things that happen in life i had a i had a uh, a thought also about your your culture definition and i was curious about this so what do you think in particular going off of this idea of um a culture being a relationship to change 
What do you think are some of the key, perhaps, differences between what we would broadly call Western culture and what we would even more uh, broadly call in, in indigenous ways of thought? You can get as specific as you want with that, obviously, because I know that it's fraught to just say indigenous and Western as these as these broad categories, but, you know, for the purpose of the podcast. Sure, sure. Well, I think that's a great question, and I think that that, um, you know, handled with, with curiosity, uh, respect, and humility, which I hope to uh, perform in a second, is, uh, is a very, very vital question, and I think it has a very clear answer. And I'm assuming here uh, cultures that are still somewhat intact under the pressures of the modern age, uh, war, uh, economic changes, colonialism, all sorts of outside external factors, and um, you know missionaryism from the major religions. Let's just assume that an ideal scenario of an intact or a relatively still robust culture. The answer to your question is initiation rites. Okay, a clear pattern, and this, you know, I think this is an exciting thing for you to and Rios to think about as you engage with the whole parenthood thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. there is proven a relationship between uh, mental and physical health and and happiness of children who can look back at their lives. Uh, where there are celebrations, not just a lot of photographs, but where milestones are, are looked after. I mean, all of the, the initiation rites that, that I went through growing up were exactly the opposite of what an indigenous uh, tribal group would be looking at. They happened off the radar of my parents and my uh you know, community adults. That was the whole point. They happened in back seats and cars and in alleys. And, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't know what they were an initiation into, but certainly wasn't into any kind of maturity uh, and confidence in the world that, that could I, I, I could present to other adults, which is kind of one of the, the ideas. Of, you know, there, there was an attempt at it, sure, graduation. I'm not saying anything against my my parents, my family, and my background. I'm talking, you know, in general terms about how Americans and, well, English-speaking people the world over grow up now. We, we just don't have these initiation rites with that degree of dignity and sacredness or just simple community social uh, support. And Intentionality, too, is a word is a word that I would use as well, right? Absolutely. And um, I mean, one of the moving moments for me uh, was to be around in a remote village. um, And I didn't have access to what uh, was happening with the young girls, but I did uh, get to at least witness. I certainly didn't participate, but I witnessed what was happening to uh, the young boys. Um, So it is a puberty, right? Um, it's also a change of life. In the, in the case of this village, it was the boys moving away from uh, time with the mothers to more time with the fathers and uncle, you know, mm-hmm. brothers network. And uh, the boys go to sleep, and these giant, amazing bird creatures, mm-hmm. you know, from out of time, mm-hmm. come out of the darkness making these amazing sounds in these amazing costumes. And, yeah, of course, you can rationalize that and go, well, these are just the, you know, the tribal men uh, dressed up to scare the young boys. You can make a Halloween story out of it. But mm-hmm. when, when I saw it, I could not rationalize and dismiss that so easily in the mm. moment. Mm-hmm. And those boys couldn't either. I mean, they it, there was a magical reality to it through the strength of belief, the, the, the solidity of tradition, and just simply some good stage magic and, uh, you know, beautiful set design. So all of that was working. Yeah. But the next yeah. morning, you know, I, I was thinking about it. And I, I here I am torn. I, I'm not one of these boys. I'm not from this culture. And I'm, I'm not pubescent. I'm, I'm an adult. And I'm trying to make it sense of this in this, you know, kind of mangled Western 
uh, part intuitive but also part intellectually burdened way. And I asked the Lula, the, the tribal shaman elder, it's kind of a complicated thing, both, both the political leader but also really a figure of, of magic and cultural tradition. Mm-hmm. I said, do you really, really all believe that the spirits came last night and that there are giant bird creatures from out of some amazing dream time? Uh, is this all just a stage act, is what we'd say in America, particularly Las Vegas, you know, where I live. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he went right past that question. He went right past that question to a deep anthropological sense of purpose and to use your word, intentionality. Uh, he said, we can't have uninitiated boys walking around believing they're men. Mm. And mm. I thought, you know, I felt like I'd been, you know, I thought, okay, see, it just blew my, my Western schismatic thinking out the window. I thought, all right, well, he refused that little tiger trap of, of mine. Just, just didn't, he wasn't even going to de- go there at all, you know? Right, just, right, right. No. And he went to the heart of, of the ritual, the heart of the, of, and the purpose behind it. We don't want uninitiated boys walking around pretending to be men. And think about this. Hmm. Think about what a really dangerous kind of spirit creature that individual would be. Yeah, 100%. What you're talking about reminds me of, you know, the probably the most brutal boy-to-man initiation that I've ever seen in documentaries, which is uh, it involves the bullet ants. It's the Satiri Mawe people uh, in Brazil. And what they do is they take bullet ants, which on the International Pain Index, which is a thing. Not really yeah, sure the Schmidt they, Pain how, Index. That's the it. Schmidt, yeah, yeah, that the guy's index. completely fantastic and yep. nuts. And, nu- and so the bullet ant is apparently worse than a gunshot. Mm. Um. So they drug these ants, they soak them in a, some kind of toxin to make them sleepy and weave them into gloves with their stingers facing into the glove. And then boys put their hands in the gloves and are, have to stand there for sometimes 10, sometimes 20, sometimes 30 minutes while they are being stung over and over and over again. There was one particular documentary that I saw. I believe it was a Vice documentary where a white Westerner participated in one of these rituals. Um, And he was so blindsided and drunk from the pain that he didn't come out of his fugue state for two days. They were kind of, they were filming this guy and he, he had no memory of what he was saying. He was sitting uh, in a boat with his hands in a cooler deep in ice, and he was asking his crew if the ritual had started yet. So he just, the poor guy had no idea what, where he was, uh, and I think he knew very well what he was getting himself into, but not not the extent of the pain that he was going to receive. But it's the same concept, right? I mean, you know, once you go through that, and it's very specifically done to boys because their reasoning is that men don't go through childbirth, right? So men never experience that kind of mind-altering, almost psychedelic levels of pain. And they believe it's very important to do so in order to have a reasoned and rational, to, to not be one of these evil spirits that you, that you mentioned. See, I think this is a, just a, a terribly fascinating field of, of anthropo- I mean, there are many aspects of anthropology that are just desperately exciting to me, but the, the concept of initiation rights, how that works, the integration of individual psychic and physical experience with communal experience, social values, uh, historical tradition. I mean, there, I, I think there's a real social genius at work uh, in these cultures where, where these traditions have been practiced 
you know, that idea of rituals. I mean, ritual is a good example. We kind of have really confused ideas about that in, in America. I mean, in, so, in some ways, I think people think of it as like a, you know, a, a sort of Wicca, you know, kind of neo-occult sort of thing. Or they think of it as another word for routine, a kind of psychotic repetition of behavior. Right. And, uh, I mean, what a terrible simplification. Um, and I don't know why... But I think this is another uh, defining part of American thinking particularly. Every simplification seems to take a derogatory direction, you know? Mm -hmm. It's not a crystallizing, encapsulating, you know, synthesizing sort of, you know, exercise of getting the essence of something. No, it's just diluting the crap out of anything and just smashing it down to nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... um it reminds me of some popular, you know, moving away from the sort of uh, simplification and, uh, I don't know, just taking all the teeth out of the idea of rituals. Are you familiar with the, the bornless rite or the headless, headless rite? Something that uh, Aleister Crowley did. Yes, uh, yes. I, I haven't thought of that for a long time. Oh, yeah. that's good to bring up. Yeah, so this is, uh, it's also known as uh, uh, Liber Samic. And Crowley, I forget the exact date that he did this on, but he performed a headless rite in the, one of the pyramids at Giza. Um, and a lot of people uh, who are sort of magically occult, uh, conspiratorially inclined, uh, believe that that, that that really messed with some of the fabric of space-time, both that ritual and some of the things that uh, you know Jack Parsons got up to. In the in the desert. I love Jack. It's <laughs> great, right? They had that TV show that I did not watch. I couldn't uh, I couldn't bear to watch it because I didn't know what they were going to do to my boy. But um, if that show's good, I apologize. I just I, I can't do it. But um, so this headless rite is a lot of intonations of um, of barbaric names and sounds, right? Um, but there is a definite fascination among occultists with um, with headlessness. Um, George Bataille, his, uh, his secret society had, uh, as its, as its, um, avatar or sigil, uh, a man, a man with a severed head, right? So there is this, there's this constant focus on, uh, separating the head from the body in a, in a spiritual sense. And I'm not quite making the connection with it other than I think it's just really cool. But maybe you can help me here. Maybe help me pick this up a bit. Well, I, I think isn't it, it's a beautiful sort of uh, almost sort of tarot card emblematic kind of way of uh, depicting a, a break from the, the overly rationalized, overly rigid age of reason mind. Uh, and, and I think, um, you know, one way to think of that is, you know, with the order of the Golden Dawn and theosophy, I mean, th- this resurgence of occult interests in, in the European tradition through, you know, the uh, Arab and, and Egyptian traditions, why did that happen at the time it did? Think about what was going on in the world of science, the world of industry, the world of invention, and also, therefore, the world of, of capitalist commodification of things. There, there seemed to be this wonderful resurgence of interest in uh, psychic, occult uh, seances, um, communing with spirits. There seemed to be a need that, that emerged there uh, at a particular moment in time. Um, and there is some connection. I think every once in a while we do need to uh, remove the head um, where there's too much, em- I mean, there's too much emphasis on the head being kind of the, uh, the prison of the brain uh, and denial of mind, you know. Mind is just a function of brain and, and the brain's in the skull, you know, cage. Um, and it's imprisoned by all these structures of reason and patterns of belief that people think they know, like they're following the science, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know. And just to take the head off, 
you know? Right. Um, I, I, um, it's recommended in some of the occult circles that I go, I, I run in to perform this ritual, maybe not, you know, once a year, but whenever you need a sort of reset. And that very particularly reminds me of, uh, other initiations through things like psychedelics. You know, I think that they're, it's both heartening and disheartening to to see uh, psychedelics become uh, pharmaceuticalized in a way. You know, ketamine treatments and mushrooms, if it helps people with their depression, I'm all for it. But it's maybe a bit of a shame that some of the, the ritual and initiatory aspects of these things have been maybe stripped away a little bit. I, I recall my experience with uh, dimethyltryptamine or DMT. Oh yes, oh, which no. is, uh, is is now be has now become a punchline because you know Joe Rogan is is famous for just bringing it up randomly to people who come on his show. You know, have you tried DMT? Um, but my experience with DMT was very interesting. I was at a friend of mine's house. Uh, I almost named him. Probably shouldn't do that. Um, and. It was the the substance. It's a very plasticky smelling white powdery substance, and it is a chemical that is present in all living beings, including plants. And most notably, it's the chemical that floods your brain when you die. Right, you get this massive, you know, release of DMT into the brain. So we put this. Uh, stuff on uh, on some weed, which I'm not a I'm not a weed guy at all. We just needed. I would have probably preferred to smoke it off of tobacco, but that's neither here nor there. And I was scared. I was so scared to smoke it that I put my lips up to the the bong and took just the minorest of hits, and sort of nothing happened. And my friends, being males, uh, began berating me, calling me all sorts of names that I will not repeat on this podcast. And so I thought, okay, you know, stop being a coward, dive right in. So I put my face up against it and I took the biggest hit that I could. And I was immediately transported outside of time and space. It's really not something that a, it's not something that a, a, a movie or a description on a podcast can do justice. I mean, you are, you're outside of everything. And you begin to... That was when I first got an inkling that things like the spirit world were real, things like God were real. You know, I was a pretty staunch atheist at the time, and that that blew that open, that subjective experience uh, sort of proved to me that there are things other than the other than human out there, right? So the question becomes to listeners who who have not experienced these things, well, did the did this guy just do some drugs and they drove him crazy? Well, I think that's a fair question. I I think that I wouldn't um I wouldn't necessarily argue with you. Uh, I also wouldn't encourage you to do anything illegal. Um but what I will tell you is that that particular initiation as a male who didn't who didn't have uh well I definitely didn't have bullet ants but I didn't really I had the the kind of initiatory experiences that Chris was talking about that sitting on that couch with my friends yes with a little buddha in the corner right and with a a poster for the band Sublime up on the wall all the all the important accoutrement of of ritual if you ask me um I did enter into a different world. There is a BC and AD quality to the before and after of that experience. So we do need some kind of initiation, I think. We have to we have to we have to become headless in a way and snap ourselves out of this awful uh mind body split that we've been raised in. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, all of the, the smart green technology, any kind of political agreements that can be reached, if, if any can, nothing will 
really ensure the survival of the human species and I think really uh, thousands and thousands of other species without a turnaround on this anthropological front, without, without addressing some of the deep, conflicted uh, simplifications that are, are embedded in our language and our individual thinking and our social practices, uh, we, we've got to somehow find that sacred space again. You know, that, that would be another thing that I would say about in, indigenous cultures. Um, and we have maybe metaphors or kind of figurative analogs of it, but they're, they're fading away. Um, many, many cultures have the idea of sacred space, which could be the kiva, you know. Uh, it could be, a, you know, it has some sort of physical locality, but it, it's a conceptual space where mm-hmm. people are free to say certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They are free to air grievances. I mean, it's a deeply social, practical thing, but it's imbued with a sense of magic and traditional uh, and heritage validity that, that informs it, you know. And, and this is what we're, we've, we're throwing all those things out one thing at a time, and we're expecting then somehow for something meaningful to happen without all the ceremonial context. Um, Leslie Marmon Silka, who's a, a great Native American writer, um, her first novel is called Ceremony, which um, is about uh, dysfunction and difficulties within a Native American community and, and one in a particular individual. And it's a powerful statement of, and she says it very simply, we need a ceremony. You know, we do not need a new drug. We don't need a vaccine. Of course we do. But what we need is is the magic, the social and personal integrative magic of ceremonies that matter to people, spirits that they can believe in and that connect them. And only with that will we find anything like the unity we're going to need to, to survive. Yeah, and that gets into the the notion, I think, one of the great contradictions, I think, of, of progression, right? Um, of this idea that society is, is constantly changing for the better, is moving towards uh, cooler and newer gadgets. Um, there seems to be no interest in progress from a ritualistic or magical perspective a lot of people and this is no knock because they're they're fantastic resources but you know many people are using the greek magical papyri to perform rituals in in 2021 and there's a reason for that it's because it works you know tried and true i'm not necessarily denigrating any of that but wouldn't it be interesting if we if we really explored the concepts of uh, cultural initiatory rites, cultural ceremonies, um, private magical practices, up- updates, you know, that more match the world uh, uh, that we live in. You know, I hope I don't piss any magicians off there. I'm, again, I'm not saying that these things are bad. I'm just saying, isn't it, isn't it interesting that we've left all this stuff in the dust and decided that it was, you know, hokey nonsense? Um, Meanwhile, you know, we're trying to figure out uh, how to reinvent vending machines and, you know, <laughs> remake uh, a new movie and reintroduce a political ideology from the 19th century. Uh, you know, there's all there's all this kind of going back, all this nostalgia for 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 these ideas, but never really the spiritual ones. I think that's tragically well said, and I think there's there is a scope uh, and and really almost a necessity now to uh, advance with with a series devoted to uh, an interrogation of of the notion of progress, particularly from Western points of view. Notice that we we hear uh, the word progress uh, as opposed to the verb progress. You know, we're obsessed. To progress, no, we say progress. It's always we're always just you know fixated on nouns, mm, mm. and in I mean in America, you know one of um, 
I taught a really cool class that I developed on this, which um, I, I, I'd like to share at some point. But it, its underlying thesis is that, uh, again, in, in, in sort of schizoid, split-minded America, we are torn between two definitions of, of progress. Technological progress, engineering innovations, new machines, you know, or social legislated progress, uh, which is effectively, you know, uh, secular, often focused on economic power, uh, not real, uh, not community unity. Um, and we don't have any frame really outside of, of uh, faith-based communities of anything to do with, with, with spiritual progress. Um, but, I mean, the whole idea of, of progress you know, in the sense of, of continuous advancement, whether that be scientific or whether that be in terms of biological evolution, you know, we're all getting better every day, you know. Um, I mean, what a radical rhetorical uh, assertion that is that's completely unsupported and bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one thing we could talk about, and I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but it's the Red Queen hypothesis. Yes, yes. Which is a, a lovely idea. It's the Red Queen, of course, from Alice in Wonderland. But it, it's a proposition that works across uh, many realms and, and, and fields of discussion. That sort of one step forward, two steps back. That every uh, it's an argument against progress in any literal, formal, and definitive terms. There's always uh, you know a negative side, a downside, a step back. Um, and I think that's worth exploring. Um, I think so, too. I think so, too. It's also worth thinking about that. I love how you said progress is a noun, because when I think of something becoming nounified, I think of it in terms of something that is very solid and fixed, right? So progress itself as an overarching concept really doesn't have any room to progress itself, right? It's just always yes. sort of there. Self-canceling. I, I think that's 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 part of this idea of 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 the split-mindedness. It, it sort of erases itself, even even as it it's claiming to explain itself. Mm. That's excellent. Well, I think that that about wraps it up for this one. I think we have a keen direction that we're going to be heading in here in the next few weeks. This has been a lot of fun, Chris. Thanks a lot. Anything you'd like Thank to close you. on? Uh, no, I think this is, uh, you know, every, every time is a journey, and we really appreciate people joining us on this. Uh, you know, we're, we're not doing an immense amount of research and preparation on this. We're really bringing things to mind that, we, that we're deeply interested in and kind of have to hand and have on our minds and are trying to sort of have a little bit of improvisational sort of jazz feeling to what we're doing. Uh, but certainly the feedback uh, is greatly appreciated. We do value community, uh, and let's not lose sight that, that unity is, is part of that word. And we're looking for, I think, trying to ways to break down this endless atomization of differentiation. You know, it's great to make distinctions, mm-hmm. but really fine minds make connections, you know. And that's the basis of of community strength. And that's where we all need to get to. Couldn't agree more. Well, folks, thanks so much for listening. And until next time, I'll just leave you with this thought. Uh, Don't do drugs unless you really want to, I guess.